This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Steve Martoreno. We hope you've been joining us to talk with the, the experts we pull together in the behavioral health field. What we're looking to do is foster diverse and meaningful conversations on a couple of things, not least of which is substance abuse, but in a much broader sense, our mental health and well-being. I needn't tell anybody that these are difficult times. Uh, Managing our way through this pandemic has uh, been a startling, startling change in our lives. The changes that go on almost on an hourly basis. We're we're, uh, it's a cliche, but. All cliches are true. That's how they become cliches. Uh, This is a big boat, and we are all in it. We're going to take another look. We've done this a couple of times already in sort of negotiating and managing our way through an extraordinarily uh, strange time with regard to our behavioral health. The way we behave has a bearing on the way we feel. Uh, So with regard to managing stress and anxiety, that'll be the topic. We will do it in a general sense, obviously, uh, but we'll also do it in somewhat more specific uh, sense when we talk about folks who are desperately trying to maintain connection with their recovery. To that end, we're really uh, pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Alan Berger. Dr. Berger is a uh, clinical psychologist. He's also an author of five books and counting. Last time I checked, a lecturer has spoken widely on these subjects. He has over 40 years' experience in the field, and he joins us from his his private practice uh, on the uh, West Coast. Um, Dr. Berger, thanks so much for taking time. I know you must be busy. Well, you're welcome, Steve. Um, it's really great to be here with you and, and uh, to be able to to talk about some of these issues that are just so, so powerful for all of us right now. Um, so thank you for having me on the show, and I hope that uh, I can share some stuff that's going to be uh, useful for your listeners to to navigate themselves through these very challenging times. Well, we appreciate your time. So let's begin a little bit, uh, just a thumbnail. I know we, we can't possibly do your resume justice, but tell us a little bit about your background. Well, my journey in recovery started back in 1971. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I went into Marine Corps in 1969 with an alcohol problem, came back from Vietnam with a problem with alcohol and other drugs. And I was very fortunate to be one of the first Marines admitted into a program that rehabilitated Marines rather than just discharging them back to civilian life. Um, That program was called the Drug Exemption Program. I was the third Marine admitted to the program at the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. Uh, They had no idea, Steve, what they were doing, but they knew they didn't know, and they turned to the AA community and invited some young people to come to the base, to the Marine Corps base, and share their stories. And I'll never forget, on a Tuesday night, this fellow Tom came in and you know, you got to get this picture. I mean, here's there's a group of about 20 of us Vietnam vets in our combat, you know, fatigues. And this hippie walks in to share with us about his story. So there was a real weird energy at the beginning of the of the meeting that we had with him. But by the end of that meeting, I was spellbound. Um, I had never heard anybody talk so authentically in my life. And the thing that stood out to me, Steve, and and has made a big impression to me, both 
personally and and through my professional career is the emotional freedom he had. See, he was free from himself. He wasn't he wasn't in this prison that I had created inside myself with all of my anxieties, insecurities, fears, and all those things. And and here was a man that was just being himself and being able to talk about stuff I wouldn't dare let anybody know about. And something inside me really knew that that's what I had been seeking. In fact, the way I say it is, is that the only time I ever felt that free, Steve, was when I was either drinking or getting high. And here, this was a, you know, Tom was that way without doing anything other than living his life in a certain way, and I wanted to do that. So my journey started in 71. You know, last summer I celebrated 48 years of, of recovery, and, you know, one day at a time this summer it'll be 49. Well, that's a, that's a remarkable achievement. You know, it's a couple of things come to mind immediately because I'm certainly of the generation that understands uh, and experienced the Vietnam era, um, not as a, in a combat uh, context, but I understand the, the, the context in which you're talking about. Uh, we, we, we were faced with a huge and growing drug problem of a standing army in Southeast Asia. Um, and they were coming home in very serious shape. You were not alone in coming out of I the was Green not Club, alone. Right? No, Steve, you're right. Yeah. It's yeah. so true. Yeah. So, so, but, true. so, uh, so I sort of set the stage for people who might not understand that that was another tragic consequence of the war. You said something now that just is, uh, struck me as um, incredibly uh, interesting insight into this. E- emotional freedom is an interesting concept because it sounds uh, counterintuitive in the sense that we have been told, I think, from the time we grow up, you've got to control your emotions. You've got to keep them over here. You can't let your emotions uh, uh, dominate your life. When you talk about when you talk about being impressed by this fellow's emotional freedom, what, what is that? What did that mean to you at the moment? I mean, you were struck by it, but what did it mean? Well, what it means to me is that he was free to be himself. See, he wasn't constrained by a lot of the notions that I had about who I was supposed to be. And those notions were were really made life impossible. It's almost like I had the cart before the horse in in so many ways, because I had this, this idea that if I was... Uh, this I call it my idealized self. If I could live up to this this idealized self that I had generated, that I would be okay. And I never realized that the problem was is that I was really being terrorized by that. It wasn't setting me free. It was imprisoning me. And if I take responsibility, I say I imprison myself with these ideas about who I should be. Mm-hmm. And emotional freedom is really letting go of all of those shoulds mm-hmm. and being able to own and and be who I am at this particular moment in time. It's almost like Popeye the Sailor Man. I am what I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man is the way I think about it. And that's, to me, a freedom. And what I found is that when I I could own, and sometimes owning it meant something like this, Steve, is like, I'm afraid to to be who I am right now, right? And there's something that sets you free or set me free as soon as I own those things. We call it a paradoxical theory of change. As soon as I own what's really going on with me, then I can discover new possibilities. And by the way, that's how I define recovery, is the discovery of new possibilities. 
Well, it, it, again, it, it's a uh, it's I think it's a deep insight, uh, very difficult for a lot of people to reach it, because, as you said, it is sort of contradictory to start a journey to some place that really is intended to take you back where you already are. You just don't know it. <sighs> I love how you just said that. That's right on, right? It's in, in, in the other way I've defined recovery, it's the recovery of our true self or our authentic self. So you're right on, Steve. That resonates with me. Dr. Alan Berger, a clinical psychologist, is with us to talk about the, uh, the notion of at any time in life, but certainly during a pandemic, uh, trying to get to that emotionally sober state of your true self. Let me ask you a question with regard to the idea we often, or you say you had of yourself, that wasn't just didn't jibe with what you were feeling and it led to despair and and drug abuse where did where did the notion of who you were come from was it imposed upon you or did you come up with that phony well I, I think it was a combination of an interaction of several forces it's it's it's, it's such a great question because right now this a good co- friend of mine and colleague dan griffin and i are writing a book called what men would tell you if they weren't busy watching television <laughs> it's it's a great exactly. title it's a exactly. book for about men for women and what we're exploring in it are the man rules and i accepted a lot of these man rules like the no cry rule right mm-hmm. you know real men mm-hmm. don't cry mm-hmm. well i had a lot of things like that real men you know i joined the marine corps you know you're tough you're not supposed to feel any fear i was ashamed at moments that i felt fear and later on, I discovered, my God, that was a human reaction. But somehow, and this is what was so crazy, Steve, human didn't seem good enough for me. Now, talk about creating an impossible way of life, that if I'm denying my own humanity, and I think I have to be something other than human to be okay, well, you can see what a what a pickle I put myself into, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's really a difficult thing. So those rules, I think, are, are partly generated by society, right, and our culture that we live in, you know, some of the more personal rules came out of my family of origin in terms of the things that we experienced. You know, I I lost my dad at a very early age. I was 11 years old. He died of uh, cancer, multiple myeloma. Very, very traumatic for me. And, uh, you know, my mom was devastated. My grandfather, this was his only son. And the lament I heard from my dad, from my mom, was this isn't how things were supposed to be. And so right early on in life, I got this idea that if life lived up to my expectations, I'd be okay. Instead of getting the message, and this is, you know, what I want to get into today with you is to talk about emotional sobriety. Instead of me imposing my expectations on life and how it's supposed to be or should be, you know, emotional sobriety is about dealing with life as it is. And boy, that's really relevant to right now, isn't it? Well, it it certainly is. I think, and we'll get into this deeper ahead, what's what's very uh, troubling for a lot of people is... uh, even if you could get used to this notion of socially distancing yourself and being sequestered uh, and worried about catching a, a serious disease, overriding it all is this sense of this is this is supposed to be something else. This should be something else. And that can make you crazy because, as you just said, no matter what we think things should be, they're always going to be what they are. That's right. That's right. And emotional sobriety is about getting ourselves aligned with reality instead of demanding that that 
you know, reality should be what I want it to be. Yeah. And what in what happens, Steve, energetically what happens, as soon as I get focused on what should be and get upset about that, then the energy I have to cope better with what is isn't available to me. So it really undermines my ability to be present in the moment and deal with what's going on when I'm all hung up on what's supposed to be happening. Dr. Alan Berger is our guest on Recovery Radio. He's here to talk to us about uh, his pet issue and the way he approaches these uh, these uh, problems in our lives. Emotional sobriety, big topic. We have more. Stay with us. We'll be back. Hi, welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you and our guest uh, from uh, California, joining us from the left coast, Dr. Alan Berger, clinical psychologist and uh, you're the author of a bunch of a uh, bunch of books. He's lectured widely in the over four decades that he has been treating people and trying to achieve uh, with them through his work uh, what he calls emotional sobriety. Um, great. I mean, that was great. That was great stuff. Um, uh, Alan, uh, talking about trying to get from uh, uh, where you, where you where we all are to where you know we think we should be, and the confusion that causes. Tell me about your your practice. I know you're in private practice. I've also worked in the public sector. I know throughout the years. Tell us about the people you're seeing currently. Well, most of my practice is is made up of comprised of people that are in recovery, either initiating recovery, starting at what we would call stage one recovery. Um, I have probably about 20, 30% of my practice are people in that category. And then the rest of the folks are in what I would call stage two recovery, which is, you know, we, we, I love how you can define recovery as, you know, getting clean and sober, staying clean and sober, and then living clean and sober. So I've got people that are struggling with getting clean and sober, and, and I've worked with them. But then the real bulk of my practice is in, in staying clean and sober and living clean and sober. And that's where I really try to, to help people develop a real solid foundation to their recovery. And, you know, and, and building on what we talked a while ago, Steve, is I found that this emotional sobriety issue that we started to talk about is so relevant to increasing what we call recovery capital. And that's a great, great way to think about recovery is, is that we've got internal assets and external assets. And we can bring these things to bear to initiate and sustain our recovery. Well, the problem is if my recovery depends on things around me, then what happens when those things change? So let's say, for example, you know, um, I'm in legal trouble, and I've got a DUI. I'm going to, to meetings because I want to deal with this DUI. And now I've now served my time. I've, I've, I've complied with the court. I've met all the requirements. Well, if my recovery is dependent on what I'm doing externally, then as soon as that's over, I stop. What we say is that, you know, you want to fix a hole in the roof when it's raining out. Hmm. The issue is in real recovery, you know, happens when we're fixing the hole in the roof, whether it's raining or not, right? That we're motivated to grow and to continue this journey. And that's what I really try to help people get in touch with is this growth motivation and get them inspired about this discovery of new possibilities in their life. One of the things that I have observed talking to so many people in your field and others who have been through uh, treatments and maintain sobriety is the confusion regarding what that is all about, since too many people still seem to think that it's one thing, 
28 days in a yeah. facility right. or right. or even uh you know if i go through the 12 steps you know and it, and not what it actually is which is a process correct yes that's right that's right and, and that's that's um so true see what we used to what i the way i describe it now is that we used to have this idea that this was an acute medical problem so it's like you broke your leg right and now you got to go fix it and then as soon as it's fixed you can go walk on it and now you're done with that you don't need any more treatment for your leg the bone is healed and you're able to function again and that's how people were treating addiction for many many years you go into 28 days and you should have it wired right maybe go to a couple meetings afterwards but people didn't get the idea that this is a chronic illness mm-hmm. like asthma like hypertension like diabetes and that perspective shifts to what you're what you just called is is being committed to the process so when i understand that this is going to take a lifelong approach of managing this yes a day at a time right now sometimes a moment at a time but it's going to be a commitment i need to make to myself for the rest of my life when people can get a hold of that then they start laying that foundation i was talking about steve well uh, let me ask you from a uh, from a personal standpoint um when you when one has done the the work and conscientiously began to build this foundation so that they can continue moving forward and then literally and i mean this literally the not literally the, the ground shakes the, everything yeah. changes that's where we are today so yes. everything we have structured whether you're in sobriety or not has been thrown up in the air as though you took yeah. a puzzle and threw it up in the air those people are at most um are in most danger of uh, a problem, aren't they? Oh, yes. Yeah, there, there's no question about it. And look, this is going to, if people are finding themselves shaky right now, then they're going to realize that their recovery was too dependent on things going on around them. Because like you said, we don't have what w- was available to us before, right? At this particular point in time, people are attending meetings on, in Zoom mostly, right? Mm. You know, they're not going, to, they're not meeting within the fellowship, and the fellowship is now virtual with people. Well, if if my recovery was dependent on things being a certain way, and now that ground is shifted, and I'm not able to adjust to that shift, then I'm in trouble. And see, this is the importance of of once again is keeping, and let's use this concept, Steve, because I think it's very useful, is think about us having an emotional center of gravity just like we have a physical center of gravity. So if my physical center of gravity is right over my two feet and I'm in an athletic stance or in karate, they called it the horse stance, the immovable stance, I'm really grounded. I can move in any direction. I'm going to be balanced. I'm going to have the best response to any kind of situation I find myself in athletically. Well, we also have an emotional center of gravity. And if your emotional center of gravity is over your two feet, then whatever happens, while you may be knocked off balance temporarily, you're going to strive to find a way to get your balance back to be able to deal with the situation as it is. You see, it's a weird concept, but we define mental health is when you allow the situation you're in to determine what you need to do to deal with it. Instead of demanding that the situation be the way you want it to, so that you feel better. Great stuff. Dr. Alan Berger, we have more with uh, with Alan straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Uh, we, we are uh, pleased to be joined by Dr. Alan Berger. He's a clinical psychologist and author, a lecturer. He's been in the uh, field of uh, psych- uh, psychology for uh, over 40 years now. He's discussing with us what, what he refers to, and we will now as well, as emotional sobriety. So that covers people who are both in actual recovery, working on their actual sobriety, and the rest of us dealing with this crisis right now, as we have found, to, to use uh, Dr. Berger's metaphor just er- uh, earlier, the pins knocked out from under us, um, and, and our emotional sobriety is at risk. Uh, these are very, very difficult times. Um, so how are, how are you functioning? I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear the details. Here we have something that n- thrives on, I mean, sobriety and emotional sobriety, thrives on connection, on reaching out, on, on community in a time when we are told those things are dangerous right now. They're not, they're not going to be dangerous forever, but right now they are a liability. We can't be together. How do you continue to reach people? What, what's the good stuff going on with regard to uh, social media in this context? And what are some of the things to worry about? Well, let me put it in this context, Steve, because I think it'll help everybody understand this. Um, my dear friend Tom Rutledge and I, we do these uh, videos. We've started to do this as just a public service. On Every week we get together for an hour and we publish these things and post them on Vimeo. But one of the things Tom likes to say is that we are isolating in community, <laughs> is we are isolating as a community. And, and he's got the essence of that we can keep our connection regardless of what's going on. But, see, to do that, you have to have a certain level of emotional maturity, or a, a, synonym, a synonym with that would be um, differentiation. So we're going to use the word differentiation, emotional uh, sobriety, synonymously, and emotional maturity. All of those are talking about the same thing. Well, when, I, when I'm differentiated, then I experience this separation or isolation as another dimension of our connectedness. You see, it doesn't become a disruption of it. But if I am not that emotionally mature, then the separation becomes isolation and then leads to depression. So depending on our response, and this is so important, Steve, is that there's always grist for the therapeutic mill or for our self-growth, right? And what, how you're responding, how your listeners are responding to this, they can use that information to see what, I, the way I call it, to see what their next step is in their emotional development. If they're feeling isolated like that, then they've got to start to take a look at the fact that, that, that they're emotionally dependent on things being a certain way for them to be okay. You see, the, the, hot, the more mature I get, then instead of things being a certain way for me to be okay, it's that I need to be a certain way to be okay. So I can look at this isolation we're having and see it as that we're all in community and doing this together. Now, one part of that then is accepting that the way I can stay connected with people, once again, I said, when you let the situation control you and you respond the best way in the situation, I start learning how to Zoom. Boy, I've become an expert at it. I think many people in the program, you know, that was a word that some people didn't even know before. I mean, I used Zoom maybe a half a dozen times before this whole thing happened. So now 
I'm now challenged to develop another part of myself to learn how to do this thing, how to manage it, how, how to show up, how to participate in a meeting that has a very different format, a very different kind of energy to it, and to be able to take from that what's available to grow me. Now, there's parts of it that are more challenging. If somebody's got ADD and they're sitting on a Zoom session, they're probably having a hard time. They're getting distracted, thinking about other things around them. So now it's a challenge to learn how to be more attentive to those things or to accept that and to find ways of dealing with that. Maybe make a, a more personal contact with someone. Look, my, my connection with my sponsor, Tom, I've been in more touch with him during this whole thing than I've had in the last several years. Well, that's what's fascinating about what you've just said. The If you can move as quickly as possible to the, the idea that the isolation or the, the, the isolation can be a fortifier of connection, connectedness. And, and we've all experienced this. This is a silly example, I suppose. But for the longest time, uh, I have uh, been on conference calls in a business sense, and someone would always send me a number, and I'd put in a key, a key uh, code to get into the conference call. I, I have learned in the past two weeks, it's you can do that with two clicks on your iPhone. That so I was forced by this isolation to know how to do that quicker. Um, yeah, there you so, go. So, so there's a lot of that. I mean, first of all, you've got to get off this notion that I'm alone. Uh, That's right. And realize yeah, you're, we're not. you're not alone. We're not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're not alone. It, it, it's just amazing times. Now, there, there are, you mentioned someone, for instance, who, who is uh, attention deficit, uh, has a problem with attention deficit. W- what, other, what other things need to be overcome when you're not literally in the room? I mean, as a, as a professional, in your case, I mean, you, you, you spent your entire life across the room from people you were, you were treating. Yes. What did you have to do? Well, that's interesting. You know, I, my my approach to therapy is I do a lot of Gestalt therapy, and I'm one of the old classic Gestalt therapists. So I use what we call the shuttle technique or empty chair technique. Well, that means that I got a bunch of chairs in my office, and I have people, you know, going back and forth. Well, I don't have that now, right? So now I have to find more creative ways of doing that. So I've got people just shifting on their couch that they're sitting on from one side to the other. I've had to find creative solutions to that with somebody I just had a session with before we got on on this uh, on this radio interview. You know, she was sitting on a bed, and I just had her play the different parts with different voices. So there's all of these adaptations, what I would call these creative responses to what's going on, to be able to work with the way the situation is. You know, see, that not that the theme that keeps coming back? is life is not going to be what it's supposed to be, unfortunately. It is what it is. It's how I cope with it that counts. And that's the message right now. And if you're having, struggling, coping with this, that's okay. Trouble doesn't mean something's wrong in your life. It just means that you've got to pay attention to what's next for you and what you have to figure out to do what you just talked about. Learn some new things. This can be an experience that can grow us incredibly so. Yeah, I've never forgotten what somebody said to me a long time about, ago about uh, adversity uh, or, or trouble. And uh, they said, you know, sometimes it's, it's or not sometimes, but always, it's easier to ride the horse in the direction it's going. Um, so, uh, yes, that's right? a great way to think of it, yeah. Steve. L- let me ask you with some uh, specificity here about things you, you may be dealing with with your, with your, uh, your patients. Grief is one of the 
uh, unfortunate emotions that is people are widely uh, sharing um, yeah. in in a new and strange way. We, you know, we know stories about you you can't you can't go into hospitals, you, you, can, yeah. you can't go to funerals. How what are you what are your uh, what's your advice to people who are dealing with grief uh, in in a distant fashion? Well, that's that, that's um, my heart goes out to all these folks, right? I think more than ever before, we've got a situation where grief is going to be what we call a complicated uh, bereavement, a traumatic bereavement. People aren't going to have the opportunity to say their last goodbyes; that they're going to be separated from those people they love, and when they're passing, and and this idea that that you're not at their side is is going to be very very painful and create a lot of sadness and grief for people. You know, one of the things that I've learned in my work with people is that we can still take care of ourselves, even though the situation doesn't unfold the way we would hope it would. Meaning that, you know, you can still write to that person, you know, write a goodbye letter to that person, put that person in a chair, talk to them. Um, There's still ways to take care of yourself that are not dependent on the situation. They're more dependent on your creativity and your willingness to try things or to experiment with things that are going to be outside of your comfort zone. Things that we wouldn't do. I mean, a lot of people aren't going to be talking, hopefully aren't going to be talking empty chairs, right, Steve? Absolutely. But this, this might be a time where, you know, if you lost your grandfather and you want to have some things to say to him or her, is to put them in that chair and talk to them and say everything that you would have said had you been sitting at their bedside. Now, that's going to help you heal this thing. And what I experienced is that when I don't follow and when I don't ride the horse in the direction it's going, like you said, and I stop myself, then that energy, Steve, gets converted to anxiety. So more than ever, we're going to see people not taking care of themselves and getting more and more anxious because these emotions want to be expressed. They need to be expressed. See, I'm constantly, there's a force inside of me that's moving towards wholeness, towards completion. And when I stop myself, it's not a good thing. Let me let me uh, take just a minute in this segment before we break again to, to look specifically at, at anxiety. It, even before the current crisis, this was, uh, we were seeing something of a golden age, um, a terrible way to put it, of anxiety. A lot of people yeah. suffering from um, garden variety, free-floating uh, anxieties to crippling anxieties. What does a yeah. clinician, what does a professional like you tell someone about their anxiety levels at a moment in time when anxiety seems perfectly appropriate? What do you tell them? Well, you, you know, I first of all, I want people to understand there's a distinction between fear and anxiety. Right now, it's, it's appropriate to be afraid. This virus that that is creating this pandemic is dangerous, and and if we don't respect it, we're going to run into trouble. So fear is grounded in reality. See, the difference between fear and anxiety is anxiety is is about what we imagine is going to happen. And it's leaving this moment and then projecting some catastrophic outcome in the future. As soon as I do that, I'm going to make myself quite anxious. Now, the way I work with that people is to say, understand that there's a part of you, we're going to call it your anxious self, that's making you anxious. You have to learn how to deal with that part of you, and we can talk more about that. 
Great, great, great advice. Alan Berger is our guest. Uh, Dr. Berger is a clinical psychologist, and, and we're, we're talking uh, about managing it all uh, in a very, very difficult period of time. This is Recovery Radio. Oh, stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Uh, Dr. Alan Berger has been our guest, and it's been just, we, uh, we could do three, three more shows with, uh, with Dr. Berger. It's been great stuff as he's, uh, he's gone, um, you know, very intimately and very, and very informatively into this area of emotional sobriety, which we're all dealing with right now. Uh, uh, Alan, I know you wanted to pick up on this notion of, of dealing with anxiety, so go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I want to give your listeners this this concept of dealing with different parts of themselves. See, Steve, another way we define mental health, this is the second definition I've given you, is that mental health is an appropriate balance and coordination of all that we are. So what it means is that we all have different parts. There's a myth of singularity. We're not just one self. There's many different parts of me. There's there's a part of me that's that's intelligent. There's a part of me that's pretty stupid. <laughs> there's a part of me that shows good judgment. Sometimes there's a part of me that shows you know poor judgment. There's a part of me that's generous. A part of me that's self-centered and selfish. I've got all of these selves. Now that doesn't make me civil. I I don't suffer from a multiple personality disorder. If I did, I wouldn't know. I had all these parts. See, they'd be isolated. Nice. But you know, I'm I'm a garden. A variety neurotic, so I'm aware of all these things, and I feel all of this internal conflict. We call it the civil war. So when my the parts in me are not coordinated well, then I'm at odds with myself. So what this means is that I need to work on my relationship within myself. Um, my good friend Tom Rutledge says, we don't want to have a codependent relationship with ourselves. We want to have a healthier relationship. I love what he, when he puts it that way. So what does this mean in terms of anxiety? Well, look, I have, and by the way, this is the first way of getting free of something is to take 100% responsibility for creating the existence that you're experiencing, which means that I create my anxiety. I create my depression, I create my alcoholism, etc., etc. I create the quality of my life at this very moment. So when I do that, it means that I have to look at the part of me that's making me anxious. And I, I like to say it that way, Steve, is because instead of thinking I'm anxious, which just makes me anxious, I want to define a problem in a way that opens up a possibility of solving it. And so when I distance myself and say there's a part of me that's making me anxious, I can now see that as the part I have to deal with to feel less anxious. It gives me a path or a direction to what I need to do to take better care of myself. So this dialogue, you know, when I have people do it, then what they see is that this other part of them is very, it's projecting in the future, it's very catastrophic, it's not based on any having any faith in our ability to grow and cope. That's the message that it gives. If I just go along with my anxious self and agree with it, I'm in trouble. Yep. Then it's like two against nobody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You what know, I try to help people do is to challenge that side of them, to disagree with it and say, you know, you're talking like I, I don't have some ability to cope. You know, I do. And if I don't know how, I know how to pick up the phone or, or you know, reach out to a therapist and stuff and get somebody to help me. Yeah. And yeah. I don't have to do this alone anymore. So what, what happens is when we respect that side of us 
instead of giving it privilege. Giving it privilege means that we let it run our life. If I respect I got the feeling, then I take my responsibility to learn how to cope with that part of me, and I learn how to deal with it. And that's the essence of emotional sobriety, is learning how to stay centered or become the determining force in your life instead of letting emotions like this run your life. And what is uh, what is most important, uh, not most important, but critical in in that process, as you've outlined it is, in this moment when we are isolated one from another, um, the dialogue, and that's the word you used, mm-hmm. that you're talking about, really begins with you. You're having the conversation with yourself. Yes. If if you begin looking outside for somebody to talk to, you, you're probably not going to get there. Is that what you the, – the yeah, yeah, you're right on. Unless somebody directs you towards paying attention to that dialogue with yourself. But you're right. Is that if – and here, that's another key point because what undermines emotional sobriety is my emotional dependency. So if I rely on you to make me less anxious – then I'm emotionally dependent on you, and I'm okay when you do what I want you to do. And when you don't, then I try to manipulate you to get to get you to behave the way I, I think I need you to behave for me to be okay. You and know, see, you're good. And I, I was just going to say, and what that's based on is this idea that I need someone else to be okay. And it undermines our own ability, and it undermines our faith in ourselves to be able to cope better. Alan Berger, th- thanks so much. We we uh, we have um, you know gotten to it, and I wish we had another uh, hour to continue this. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Doctor Berger is a clinical psychologist, and pri- he has a private practice on the West Coast. But but he uh, is uh, in many places with uh, with uh, many things to help folks. A, a couple of ways people can reach you or, or get into that Zoom uh, program you were talking about. How do they do that? Okay, uh, Steve. Here's a few things. So you can go to my website. There's a lot of, uh, I open source a lot of the things I do. That's www.abphd, so my initials, abphd.com. You can go on Vimeo, put in my name. I've got four videos that we've just released as a public service uh, to help people, support people through recovery, discussions I've done with Tom Rutledge. And there's also a video on there that we were going to be um, at one point selling um, to people about unpacking Bill Wilson's letter on emotional sobriety. We just decided to to turn it over to the community as as our part of trying to help people get through this. It's a talk I did with Herb Kagan. All of that's available on Vimeo. Now, on Thursday nights, I started uh, an Emotional Sobriety Anonymous meeting. And last night was our third meeting. We had 74 people. So let me give everybody the Zoom ID and password. We'd love for you to join us. It's 330-149-513. 330-149-513 is the ID password. 375-986. We'll try to get that, st- that stuff all, all up on the website for you, but Alan's website has it as well. Alan Berger, Dr. Alan Berger, thanks so much uh, for your time and joining us on, on the program. Uh, hope to have you back real soon. Stay safe. Thank you, Steve. Take My care. pleasure. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.